seated. I want to invite you to pull out a Bible with me. You'll see soon that a Bible is very crucial tonight. So if you have a copy of God's Word, that is excellent. Pull it out. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, maybe you can uh, kind of look off your neighbors or possibly uh, there could be, not going to promise anything, but there could be a Bible under your seat. May or may not. You'll see why it is extra crucial tonight that you have a physical copy of God's Word Uh, in front of you. Welcome to Impact. Uh, A lot of new faces today. My name is Chase. I'm the youth pastor here at Hardin Baptist. So happy, so happy you came to worship the Lord, the true Lord with us tonight, first through song and now through his word. So we're going to get to that. We're going to get to Revelation chapter 13 tonight, but first I just want to, I just want to set a scene for us. I want you to imagine that you're about to go into the biggest game of your life. I know not all of you love sports, I know not all of you play sports, but just imagine for a moment you do and that you love it and that you're about to go into the biggest game of your life and not only is this the biggest game of your life, but the team on the other side is the toughest opponent of your life. Biggest game, toughest opponent. But just before tip-off, or just before that first pitch, or just before that coin flip, just before the game, out of nowhere, someone comes up to you and hands you the opposing team's entire playbook. Like the entire playbook. All of a sudden, it's in your hands. Their strategy that they're going to implement to try and score on you, to try and stop you, you now know. It's in your hands. You know every single play in their playbook. Now, still the same game and still the exact same team. They're still tough. They're still good. They're still fierce. But things have changed now because you have their playbook. I just think, how is that going to help you? Well, by knowing what your opponent is trying to do against you, you're going to now know what you need to do against your opponent, right? Well, now I want to change this scene just a little bit and make it more realistic. Because now I want you to imagine that that opponent on the other side of the field, his name is Satan. And he's tough. He is good. He is fierce. He is your enemy, and he's a good one at that. But in our passage tonight, Revelation 13, what we're, go- what we're about to do, what we're about to receive is we're about to see his entire playbook. We're about to see every strategy that he is trying to employ to stop you. Like we are about to learn through God's word all of Satan's plays. Now don't get me wrong, he's still a great enemy. He's still a dangerous enemy. He's still a tough enemy. But thanks to our passage tonight, we are about to know his entire strategy. His entire strategy. Nothing's hold back tonight. And so think about how is this going to help us? How is this going to help you? Well, if he's really your enemy, and he is, Knowing everything he's trying to do against you tells you, helps you understand what you need to do against him. And that's what we're going to see tonight in God's word. It's all about Satan's strategy. And that strategy, it's actually really, really simple. It's made up of three steps. He's trying to copy. He's trying to conquer. And he's trying to condemn. 
Like this is our main point tonight of Revelation chapter 13. Satan's strategy is to copy, to conquer, and to condemn. Now I want you to know, I have no plans to make light of Satan tonight, but I also have no plans to fear Satan tonight. He is a fierce opponent. Yes, he is. But I've read Revelation 13, and I know his entire playbook, and I know who's on my team, and it ain't him, it ain't a dragon, it's the lion of Judah, the lamb of God, and I already know how the story ends. And my team beats his team. And tonight we're going to see what his team is trying to do to my team. So let's turn attention to the word of God, Revelation 13. Let's see Satan's strategy. Now, if you're new to impact, we're going to do something different tonight. Instead of expositing God's word, which means I go verse by verse and kind of give you some commentary, some thoughts, some applications. What we're going to do at the beginning, we're going to read all of Revelation 13. And I warn you, it's 18 verses, a little long. And then throughout the message, I'm going to allude to those verses. We're not going to put them on the screen. And so that's why it's so helpful tonight if you have a copy of God's word in front of you. If you want, you can use a phone, pull up a Bible app, but please, 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 what the enemy wants tonight is for you to get distracted by that phone, to get distracted by a partner, a, a neighbor. So lock in tonight as we read the word of God. Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 18, the whole text, and then we'll pray and look at it some more. Verse 1, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea. With ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast." And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Verse 5. And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make a war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Verse 11, then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast 
to be slain. Verse 16. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is a number of a man, and his number is six, six, six. Let's pray. God, we just read your word. And what a, what a chapter this is. It is clear we have an enemy tonight. It is clear he is here tonight. But it is clear that the saints in this room are not scared of him tonight because we are on an opposing team. It's the Lamb's team. And the Lamb is one. So God, I pray that every mind and heart would be captive to the word tonight and that your word would pierce every heart in this room. That believers would be edified. And that unbelievers will come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior for the very first time. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, immediately I can kind of tell, I can kind of sense the room, I have your attention. And the reason I have your attention is because this is the most disputed chapter, perhaps, in the book of Revelation. So up front, I just want to tell you, there's, there's a question I will not answer tonight. I won't. I'm sorry. That question's this. Who or what is the beast? Now, I'm not going to answer that question. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you why. There's two reasons. First, discovering the identity of a beast isn't the point. It's not the point. It's like reading Genesis 1 and trying to figure out the age of the earth. Like, that's fun. That's okay. That's, that has its place. But here, as I preach the word from a pulpit, from a preaching perspective, this isn't the point of the passage. The point of Revelation 13 isn't for us to, to think about names throughout history who may or may not have been the beast. That's not the point. The point of Revelation 13 is to see what Satan is trying to do against you and what you need to do against him. So it's not the point. Second, though, and more importantly, discovering the identity of, be- identity of the beast is not possible. So not only is it not the point... I think it's not possible because in my opinion here, the beast or the beasts, plural, here in Revelation, they aren't one particular person. In fact, I agree with a guy named Sam Storms. This will show up on the screen here. He concludes that the beast, surprise, is a symbol for all individual and collective satanically inspired opposition to Jesus and his people. I agree with him. This is my opinion. This is his opinion. It is actually impossible to identify the beast as one particular person. Like, it is this guy or it is this girl. That's not the point. It's not possible because the beast symbolizes way more than just one particular person. Instead, the beast symbolizes many, many, many people throughout history. So maybe that disappoints you. I'm sorry, but I just can't tell you who the beast is because it's not possible. He's not one literal person. He is symbolically many people. 
And so to bring this full circle as we get into our text, the point of the passage here isn't to tell us who this beast is, but to show us Satan's strategy to deploy these beasts as a part of a three-step strategy to do the only things he has left to do, which is copy, conquer, and condemn. And so let's look, at, let's look at step one of Satan's strategy, copy. More specifically, step one is to copy the one true God. You see, essentially throughout the Bible, and, and it's particularly clear in this chapter in Revelation, Satan loves to do his best God impression. He loves it. But here's the thing. He, he's only going to be able to become what I'm going to call like a great value God. A great value God. Does anyone, everyone, everyone knows what great value is, right? Like, listen, I love great value. Me and my wife, we buy great value, and here's why, right? I looked at this today. At Walmart, you can go and buy a 100 stack of Dixie paper plates, a name brand paper plate, for $30. Or, sitting right next to that Dixie 100 stack of paper plates is a great value 100 stack of paper plates. And guess how much it is? $6. Keep in mind, I'm on a pastor's salary, all right? I'm not, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a doctor. What am I buying? I'm buying the great value brand. I love great value brand, but you got to follow along with me here. I'm okay with great value paper plates. I really am fine by me. I'm not okay with a great value God. I'm not okay with a cheap knockoff version of the true thing. I need the real God. You need the real God. We don't need a great value God. But you got to see tonight, this is exactly what Satan has become. This is exactly what he's doing. He's trying to copy God, but it's going to be really clear in this text. He's just a knockoff version. He's just a phony of the real thing. And so here's going to do this. Here's how he's going to do this. He's going to copy God. He's going to take himself as a dragon. And he's going to create a three-headed version of himself, so to speak. So in chapter 13, this dragon, which is Satan, we learned that in chapter 12, he creates two beasts, one from the sea and another from the land. And so all of a sudden, you got this single dragon who is now made up of three, of three parts. Now you got a dragon, now you got a sea beast, and now you got a land beast. One Satan, three parts. What does that sound like to you? Well, it sounds like to me that this dragon is clearly trying to make himself into what many people call the satanic trinity. The satanic trinity. Now, what is that? Why does it matter? Why are we talking about this? Well, if you're somewhat new to Christianity, what you need to know is that our God, the true God, is what we call a trinity. And essentially that means he is one God, but he's made up of three distinct persons. And those three persons of the triune God are God the Father, God the Son, which is Jesus, and God the Spirit, which we often just call the Holy Spirit. 
And so watch here in chapter 13 what Satan blatantly does. Blatantly. Like it is, it is obvious. He tries to copy God's triune nature. But here's the thing. I'm going to gladly go ahead and ruin this for you. He's going to fail, and he's going to fail miserably. And you want to know why? Because try as he may to be God, Satan will never be God. Ever be God. And therefore, he will never be a trinity. But that's not going to stop him from trying. And so let's look at how each person of Satan, the dragon, the land beast, the sea beast, copies each person of God. All right? First, you got the dragon... And he tries to copy the first person of God, God the Father. So I want you to look in chapter 13 with me. Look carefully. This chapter, it's mostly about the two beasts, but the dragon is subtly going to do one very important thing. And here's what he does. He gives his power, he gives his throne, and he gives his authority to the first beast. Look with me at the second half of of verse 2. And to it, that's the first beast, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. And then what does verse 4 say? They worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast. So what's happening here, right? Well, you got Satan, you got the dragon giving his power, giving his throne, giving his authority to the first beast. Who else does that? I'll tell you. God the Father does this. The first person of the Trinity. The Bible tells us that God the Father has given his power, has given his throne, has given his authority to Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. So do you see what's going on already here at the beginning? Satan is doing his best to copy God. The dragon is trying to copy the Father. You may be thinking, okay, Chase, that's just a coincidence. That's, that's just a coincidence. You're making too big of a deal about this. Well, watch what happens next. Because this dragon, he creates this first beast from the sea. And guess who that first beast copies? It is obvious. The first beast copies Jesus in many, many ways. And we'll explore just a couple of those ways here tonight, how the first beast copies Jesus. Watch how he does it. First, in his description, the first beast is said to have a lion's mouth. Not so coincidental anymore. We see it in verse 2. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. Why is this significant? Well... Jesus, throughout the Bible and in Revelation, he is called a lion as well. Even back to to Revelation 5, Jesus is referred to throughout the scriptures as the lion of Judah. And so Jesus is a lion. We We have a lion, and now we have another lion, the first beast. But I want, you to, I want you to notice this. There, there's a really big difference between these two lions. It, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the Lion King. I, I love the Lion King. Hopefully you've seen that. If not, you should have definitely seen that by now. And the Lion King, first you have a, a lion named Mufasa, right? And Mufasa is this great king of the Pride Lands. And then you got another lion. His name is Scar. 
And he is a lion, just like Mufasa. But let's be honest, Scar is, is nothing like Mufasa, is he? Like Mufasa, he's noble. Mufasa, he is good. Mufasa, he is the true king, while Scar is deceptive. Scar is evil, and Scar is nothing more than a fake king. And this is the difference between Jesus the lion and Satan the lion. The first beast can try to be like Jesus as much as he wants, but it's not going to work. Jesus is the true king. Jesus is the lion of Judah who died to save the world. And Satan, he can be a lion if he wants. All he'll ever be is a wannabe king who can't even save himself. And so notice how the first beast has a lion's mouth because he wants to copy Jesus, the lion of Judah, but he's not even close to done. Because second, what I want to point your attention to, and perhaps this is most telling for me, the first beast also receives a mortal wound. Did you notice that? But he miraculously recovers. Mortal wound, miraculously recovers. Like, it's almost comical. Like just skim through a couple of verses with me in chapter 13. Verse 3, one of its heads, this is the first beast, seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. Verse 12, the second beast makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose, so first beast, mortal wound was healed. One more time in verse 14, the second beast deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the first beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Now understand here that a mortal wound, that's just not, that's not like a serious wound. That's not like, let's get some stitches and, and kind of stitch you up here. A mortal wound is synonymous to a fatal wound. And so this first beast has been fatally wounded. But what happens next? He doesn't stay fatally wounded. He miraculously recovers. He's somehow been brought back to life. Like your, your alarm should be going off. Are you kidding me? How obvious is what is happening right now? The first beast is copying Jesus who received a fatal wound on the cross as he died in your place but three days later miraculous, miraculously recovered through his resurrection. And so this first beast, this is Satan's best attempt to copy Jesus in his death and resurrection. Like, can I just say what we should all be thinking right now? This is pitiful. This is almost comical. Like Satan knows he can't be Jesus. He sure knows he can't beat Jesus. And so his next best option is try to be like Jesus. I mean, it's, it's pitiful. Like if you walked in here to Impact tonight and all of a sudden you had on your khaki joggers and your t-shirt and your Jordans or your blazers, and you started to dress like me, and you started to talk like me, and then you got up here to preach like me, I'd be like, hey, bro, like, that's cool. It's good style, really good style, great shoes. I know where you bought them. But this is a little creepy, man. Like, you be you, I will be me, because I can't be you, and you can't be me. 
But this is exactly what Satan's doing to Jesus here, right? Like he's literally copying his every move. He wants to look like him. He wants to be like him. He wants to do what he's done. But he's not done because there's still one more beast to go. And if the dragon is copying God the Father and the first beast is copying Jesus, which is God the Son, who do you think the second beast, which comes from the land, is trying to copy? You guessed it, the second beast, he's trying to copy the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And I want you to watch how he does this. First, the second beast lives, exists, to bring worship to the first beast. This is why the second beast comes into existence, so that he can cause people to worship the first beast. Look with me at verse 12. The second beast exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. So he's equal to the first beast, but he makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. And then verse 14, by the signs it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. That's the first beast. So literally here, the whole purpose of the second beast is to try to bring worship to the first beast. And who does that sound exactly like? To me, it sounds exactly like how the Spirit lives to bring worship to Jesus. He's copying the Spirit here. But the second way he does this is perhaps the most significant of all. And it's the one that you have questions about. The second beast puts a mark on people's foreheads. So let's just revisit those few verses. Look with me at verses 16 through 18 where the beast puts a mark on people's foreheads. Verse 16 says, The second beast causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. Verse 18 says, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now, I mentioned this, but out of all of Revelation, these are the verses that you guys have asked me the most. What does this mean? What is the mark of the beast, and who is this number 666? I want to answer those, but before what, what I tell you, before what I think here, first I need you to see the big picture. We got to see the big picture and then we can get in the weeds, okay? Just like what we're seeing throughout this chapter, and I didn't even tell you half of the way Satan copies God in this chapter for time's sake, but just like what we've seen all throughout this chapter so far, it's no surprise that the end of this chapter with this mark is yet another attempt of Satan to try and copy God. And this time, it's the Holy Spirit. So he's trying to copy God. How can we be sure of that? Well, I want you to think back with me to some other parts in Revelation. What is like one of the major things the Spirit has done in Revelation? Like maybe the most important thing the Spirit has done in Revelation you ready for it? You know this. 
The Spirit seals believers on their foreheads. That's what the Spirit does in Revelation. We've seen it twice so far, chapter 7 and chapters 9. And so here's the picture in Revelation. Everyone who belongs to Jesus, you get a seal on your forehead. It's a symbol. And that seal is symbolizing the Holy Spirit of God who comes the moment you trust in Jesus to live inside of you as a believer and he seals you for the day of redemption when Christ returns. So in other words here, this seal of God on your foreheads, if you're a believer, it's a mark that says you belong to God. And so you can't see it right now, but as a believer in Jesus Christ, I have a seal on my forehead right now. I have a mark on my forehead. It's the Holy Spirit. He lives within me, and he has sealed me for the day of redemption when Jesus returns. And you do too, if you're a believer. So now, let's think about the mark of the beast. Where does that mark get put? Non-coincidentally, the mark of the beast gets put on people's foreheads. Exactly like the seal of the Spirit. Not a coincidence. So what's happening here? What is going on? It is obvious, obvious, another attempt of Satan to copy the one true God. And even more specifically, this is an attempt to copy what the Holy Spirit does by sealing believers' foreheads. Satan comes along through this second beast and he marks his people's foreheads. So make sure we're understanding this. Just like the Holy Spirit seals believers on their foreheads, here's what's happening, okay? Don't miss this. Satan has marked unbelievers on their foreheads. So I told you, if you look at me tonight, there is a mark on my forehead that you can't see. I'm a believer, and I've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. He's the mark on my forehead. If you're an unbeliever here tonight, guess what? You still got a mark. But it's not the same as my mark. And it might not be the same as the person sitting next to you, their mark. You have the mark of the beast. And this isn't a real mark, obviously, right? This is a symbolic mark. Just like if you have the seal of God on your forehead, you belong to God. If you have the mark of the beast on your forehead tonight, which means you're an unbeliever, that means you belong to the beast, Go ahead, like, go up, feel your forehead right now. Every single person, you got a mark. It's not literally there, but if you're a believer, it's the seal of spirit. If you're an unbeliever, it's the mark of the beast. So not a credit card, not an Apple phone, not a vaccine. A symbolic mark that every unbeliever on the face of the earth has right now as we speak. So what about that number? What about 666? Kind of, kind of makes us nervous, like... What is 666? If the mark of the beast is not a real mark on people's foreheads, can I just say this? That means the number 666 is not a real number that's really putting on people's real foreheads. In fact, the point of 666 is to contrast, I believe, the number 777, which is the number of deity. Perfect deity. 
And so here's this picture with 666, right? Even though Satan is trying to copy God, who is 777, he's falling short in every way possible. Represented by his number, not 777, which he wants to be, but by 666, because he will never be 777. That's what the number means. Satan wants so badly to be God, obvious in chapter 13, but he will always fall short, and therefore he'll always be nothing more than 666. Whew, this is good, right? So follow along with me here. If you're an unbeliever, you have the number 666 written on your forehead tonight, and it's called the mark of the beast. And I know that's scary, and it should be. It is scary, because that mark indicates that you belong to Satan. And this is really bad news, because the one you belong to, he wants to be God, but he's never going to be God. He can just copy God, and this is his first strategy. This is step one. He wants to copy God, his triune nature. He even goes so far as to put a mark on the foreheads of everyone who belongs to him, just like the Spirit has done for us. It reminds me a little bit of what happened. I'm a, I'm a big basketball fan. It reminds me a little bit of what happened to a guy named Clay Thompson. Uh, a couple years ago, here's a picture of Clay in case you don't know who Clay Thompson is. Context, this, the guy you're looking at, he's one of the best shooters in NBA history. Like one of the very best. And apparently, he also has a lookalike. Maybe you've seen this. Here's Clay's lookalike. This is a YouTuber. You've probably watched some of his videos before. This guy's name is Dawson Gurley. And so let me tell you what happened here. Essentially, this guy, we're just going to call him Fake Clay Thompson. Fake Clay Thompson snuck into the Chase Center, which is where the Warriors play. And now this is what blows my mind. It's game five of the NBA Finals. And not some random Joe, the Atlanta Hawks coming in to play the Golden State Warriors. We're talking about game five of the NBA Finals. And this guy tries to sneak in as Clay Thompson. Like, come on, bro. This ain't gonna work. You look a little bit like Clay, but you also don't look like Clay. All right? Like, you, you, this ain't gonna work, Dawson. Like, just, just go home. Here's what's crazy. It worked. Game five of the NBA Finals. Dawson Gurley, you can see, gets all the way down to the Chase Center floor. Untouched by security. Like security thought it was Clay Thompson. But then something happened. See that basketball in his hands? This is right before he started shooting that basketball. And I told you, Clay Thompson, one of the greatest shooters in NBA history. Dawson Gurley, not a great shooter at all. As soon as fake Clay Thompson started shooting, it was clear and obvious at this point. This guy is nothing more than an imposter, right? He's not the real Clay, he is a fake Clay. And it's obvious because now he's shooting. So here's what I want you to see tonight. This exact same thing is going on with Satan. He is copying God, but he is nothing more, nor will he ever be anything more than an imposter. And the whole point of this first step is he wants to deceive you into believing he's God and therefore worthy of your worship. And some of you, unbelievers, have fallen for it. 
Like the security team, everyone's like, dude, how do you mistake this guy for Clay? Look at chapter 13, and if you're an unbeliever tonight, you should be asking, how have you mistaken the dragon for God? But that's exactly what has happened. But some of us in this room, we see through the fake Clay Thompson. We see through the dragon. We've been rescued by Jesus. We're not worshiping Satan. We are worshiping Jesus. That means we're a believer, right? Well, Satan, he has another step to his strategy for believers. It's step two. And his first step is to copy God. His second step is to conquer God's people. Again, all throughout Revelation 13. We saw last week in chapter 12 that Satan, he's, there's a war going on, right? But the war has already been decided and Satan has lost. Jesus has won, which means if you belong to Jesus, that means you have won too. It means Satan cannot beat you. Do you get this? If you're on Christ's team tonight, game over. You've won. Satan can't come back. He has lost. You have won. And you hear this, this is true. Satan cannot beat you. But he's still got a game plan to try to get you. Because if he can't beat you, then the only thing left for Satan to do to believers is to persecute you, to try and devour you, to conquer you. Right, let's just take a quick look here at chapter 13. Look with me at verse 6. It opened its mouth, this is the first beast, to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is, those who dwell in heaven. So that's you and me. Satan blasphemes us. He can't beat us, so better just blaspheme us. Verse 7. Also is allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. That's you. If you're a believer, Satan is trying to conquer you. He can't beat you, but he's going to try to overcome you. He's going to try and conquer you. Verse 9, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. So this is all evidence. We've won the war, but there's still a war. And this war is no joke, right? Like, like Satan cannot beat us. And so his next best thing is to persecute us. And we know this is true because as we gather here at Impact, right now as we speak, there are millions and millions and millions and millions of Christians across the globe who are being persecuted. Like right now. Some being martyred for their faith. But here's the thing, right? Even in his conquering of the church, Satan still doesn't win. I mean, just, just think about this with me. Answer this. What is the worst thing that you think Satan can do to you? The worst thing Satan can do to you? I'll tell you what I think. I think it's probably he could kill you. I would say that's pretty bad for you. But now let me ask you this. Satan's conquered you. He's killed you. What is the best thing that can possibly happen to you? Well, if you're in Christ, to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
So Satan's best strategy, which is to persecute you, ultimately, maybe to devour you, maybe to conquer you, maybe to kill you, is now the best thing that can possibly happen to you. So even in his conquering, Satan is still losing. He has lost. Christ has won. And in Christ, that means you have won too. That's his second step. And so let's look quickly at his third step because it is perhaps most pressing here tonight. His third and final step to Satan's strategy, understand this, not everyone in this room is on the winning side. He can't beat the winning side. He can't beat the church, so he persecutes the church. But some of you are not the church. You're in a church building, but you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, which means you still belong to Satan. And Satan's step three in his strategy, after he copies God, after he conquers the church, is to condemn you. Step three is condemnation. Worldwide condemnation for everyone who has not trusted in Jesus. I'll be honest with you, I I don't like this step. The first one kind of makes me laugh a little bit. The second one doesn't bother me because I know I'm on the winning side. The third one, I kid you not, keeps me up at night. Because this third step brings eternal condemnation on everyone who does not belong to Jesus, including, I would say, many people in this room. And you're called unbelievers. And so here's how we're going to do it. First, he gets unbelievers to worship him. And I know that's a little bit shocking, maybe not if you've been following Revelation up to this point, but the Revelation is clear. Unbelievers, all of them, even the ones here tonight, are worshiping Satan. And I know that's a little shocking. Like we think about Satan worshipers and we think about cults and we think about evil people and we think about sacrifices, people who do terrible things. But Revelation 13, it does not put it quite that way. Because the reality is, and I need you to hear me tonight, if you're an unbeliever or if you know an unbeliever, they're worshiping Satan. You could be worshiping Satan. If you don't believe me, like, don't believe me, believe God. Skim chapter 13 with me. Verse 3. The whole earth marveled as they followed who? Not Jesus. Not their favorite athlete as they followed the beast. So unbelievers are marveling at Satan and they are following who? Satan. This is what scripture says, verse 4. They worshiped the dragon, for he had given authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb who was slain. I mean, I'm not saying you got to like it, but I'm saying you also got to face this, right? Unbelievers... It's not just that they're not worshiping Jesus, but it's the fact that they are worshiping Jesus' enemy. And his name is Satan. They're worshiping Satan. They're following Satan. But here's the thing. If you're following Satan tonight, the prince of the power of the air, you're following off a cliff. 
Or to put it more bluntly, if you're following Satan tonight, you're following him straight into hell. But he's okay with this because this is actually his strategy. He wants you, unbelievers, to follow him into hell because that is exactly where he is going. And so, yes, unbelievers, you're worshiping Satan, but here's your even bigger problem. Everyone who worships Satan is ultimately, one day soon, going to die with Satan. Satan doesn't win, and if you belong to him, you don't win either. He's going to a place called hell, which in Revelation chapter 20, the Bible calls a lake of fire and sulfur, and he's going to be tormented day and night forever and ever and ever. And you know what? Everyone who worships him, which we should just call unbelievers, are going to that exact same place. So here's the deal. He's going down. His strategy is to bring you down with him. He's going to hell, and so his strategy is to cause you to worship him, to blind you to the truth, to keep you in chains so that you lose with him. Wake up tonight, unbelievers. Do you see what he is doing to you? And here's what drives me crazy. Here's what keeps me up. You are letting him do it. You come to impact and you would rather look at your friends or look down or look at your phone instead of hearing the gospel that has freed you from your sins. You're letting him get away with murder and it's not murder of your friend, it's murder of you. He is trying to condemn you but hear me tonight you are not without hope if you are hearing my voice because there is a way for you to be saved there is a way for you to be freed tonight and his name is Jesus that way that truth that life is Jesus he has died to save you from your sin, to rescue you from your enemy, and to make you right with the true God, and to cause you to worship the true God. He died to save you. This is the best news in the world. And some of you come, or maybe this is the first time you've ever heard it. Don't leave without trusting in it. Because this is entire strategy. I want to copy God, I want to conquer his people, and I want to condemn every single person who is not in Christ Jesus. And so the question is, how can we respond to this? And so I just want to make three applications for every single person in this room tonight. The first is we got to trust in Jesus. Unbelievers, hear me. I got two more applications, our strategy as we fight Satan's strategy, but you don't need to worry about two and three because you haven't followed step one of this strategy yet. You're here tonight and you're locked in sin's chains. You are locked in Satan's closet 
And the only way out is not for you to fight them. The only way out is not for you to become good, for you to be freed from your sin on your own. The only way out is for you to trust in the one who has already defeated him. Jesus. We're not going to do a response tonight. But I want to invite every unbeliever after this message or even right now in your seat to trust in Jesus. If you don't know how to do that, if you have more questions, I will be right here. Maggie will be right here. Your small group leader will be right there. A friend will be right there. And you can tell them, I want to trust in Jesus. I don't want to belong to Satan anymore. I don't want the mark of the beast on my head anymore. I want the seal of the Spirit. And I want to belong to Christ. Second, if you are in Christ, there's still a war going on and Satan's still trying to conquer you, which means you and I have to walk by the Spirit every day. We got to get in the Word. We got to fall on our knees. We got to get accountability. And we got to obey the words of God. If you don't, you will get conquered. But if you do, you will fight back against this enemy. And third, our strategy, even if you're doing one and two, it's going to be tough. So you better hold on tight till the very end. His strategy, copy, conquer, condemn. Our strategy, hear me unbelievers, trust in Jesus. Then, Walk by the Spirit every single day and hold on tight till the very end. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray right now for that unbeliever in this room. Even if they think they're a believer, God, even if they put on a show that they are a believer or not, even if they know they're not a believer, God, we pray that the mark on the beast, the mark of the beast on their foreheads would terrify them right now but you would show them that there is an eraser right next to them, and his name is Jesus. And he died to erase that mark of the beast, to give them the seal of the spirit, and to give them eternal life in his name. God, every unbeliever we pray right now would trust in Jesus before leaving this sanctuary tonight. And we also pray for the believers in this room that they would be encouraged, that they would be edified, and they would see that they're in a true war against a fierce enemy. But our God has won that war. And in him we have won too. So let us fight back against the enemy. Let us walk by the Spirit every single day. And let us hold on tight to the very end. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Not a lot of announcements. Do or say. 